Section Zero of the History of Rome, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Emily Maynard. The History of Rome, Volume One, by Livy, translated by William Maspin Roberts. Introduction by the translator. The place which Rome fills in the history of the world is in many respects unique. Speaking broadly, it is not too much to say that the history of Western Europe, at all events, begins with that of Rome. The successive waves of population, Cymri, Gael, Teuton, and their unknown predecessors, whose steps can only be traced now by flint and bronze in cave or in tumulus or lake dwelling, have no record. The unnumbered centuries of their existence, their movements, their wars, their customs, and to a great extent their religions are absolutely silent. Not till they come into contact with Rome do they become articulate in the pages of Caesar and Livy and Tacitus. And to adopt Niebuhr's simile, quote, As rivers flow into the sea, so does the history of all the nations known to have existed previously in the regions round the Mediterranean terminate in that of Rome. Each in turn is absorbed. Its nationality is merged in Roman citizenship. Its history becomes a chapter in the history of the Roman Empire. This history is complete in itself, exhibiting all the stages of its evolution. The story is the story of an individual life, the vigorous infant passing successfully through all the diseases of infancy, the childhood with its nascent consciousness of power, the youth masterful and ambitious, winning its way to authority and dominion, manhood in the full maturity of its strength, exercising discipline and enforcing respect for its mandates, but also bearing within the secret seeds of disease. Then the slow waning of vitality, the weakening of the power to control, finally the senile decay and the inevitable dissolution. Its development is not cut short, as in the case of almost every other nation, it fulfills its destiny and reaches its appointed goal. It is this which invests the history with so much interest for the student of politics. The shepherd settlement on the Palatine Hill became the metropolis of an empire, stretching from the Atlantic to the Euphrates, from the Firth of Forth to southern Egypt, and we can follow the steps of the journey. The main lines of development can be traced almost from the beginning with sufficient clearness. To study the means by which Rome won her empire, the characters of her statesmen, the splendid patriotism which made even the bitterest internal dissensions subserve the welfare of the state, the unshaken belief in her destiny, the reverence for law which transformed conquered nations into loyal citizens, is to gain an insight into the permanent laws that determine the course of history which probably the records of no other nation can give. But the twelve centuries through which this life was lived do not exhaust the interest which Rome evokes. Her headship still remains, transfigured, it is true, but wielding an authority all the stronger because less palpable. Her laws still form the foundation of our modern jurisprudence. Her language, modified but recognizable, is still the speech of southern and western Europe. The strongholds of her legions are amongst the leading cities of our own and other lands. It is not surprising that many writers should have been inspired to take part in recording their country's achievements. We know of some dozen or so who wrote histories, some starting from the foundation of the city, others from its restoration after the destruction wrought by the Gauls. 
Livy, however, was the first who made this history a living thing for his countrymen, the first who made them realize the meaning of much in their political and social life which could only be understood by an acquaintance with the past in which it was rooted. His task was an exacting one, retracing the history from the foundation of the city, 754 BC, and indeed far beyond it, he brought it down to his own times. The work actually terminated with the death of Drusus, 9 BC, but it has been reasonably conjectured that he had intended to close his great work with the death of Augustus, which occurred three years before his own. This would still be more probable if Tacitus, who began his annals from that point, intended to take up the history where Livy had left it. Livy's work, so far as we can trace it, was distributed into 142 books, but had it closed with the above-mentioned date, it would in all likelihood have extended to 150 books. These were grouped into decades, which are supposed to have been published as each was completed. The state in which we possess this work today is a striking instance of the wreck which has overtaken classical literature, especially Latin. Not only have all the writers of history before him perished with hardly a trace left behind, but his own work remains as a mere fragment. Out of the 142 books, we actually possess 35 and some fragments of other books. The whole of the second decade, 11 to 20, is lost, and all the books beyond 46, whilst 41 and 43 are incomplete. As Niebuhr truly remarks, quote, of all the losses that have befallen us in Roman literature, the greatest is that which has left his history imperfect. How long he was working at his colossal task, it is difficult to say. It is most likely that he commenced it when he was about 30 years of age and devoted the rest of his life to its completion. He began his work, in that case, just after the Battle of Actium had decided who was to be the ruler of the Roman world. The republic whose course he was to describe had ceased to exist when he took up his pen. Our knowledge of his life is extremely scanty. He was born somewhere about 59 BC at Patavium, the modern Padua, from which he was known as Titus Livius Patavinus. Patavium was a place of great importance, a large and thriving commercial city containing a large proportion of wealthy men. And, what is of more importance, it was a place where a high standard of morality was maintained. We know nothing of Livy's pedigree, but the aristocratic sympathies which show themselves in his history have been supposed to indicate that he was of good family. The atmosphere in which he was brought up, the moral and political principles which he imbibed in his native place, had doubtless a large share in fixing the standpoint from which he was to make his survey of Roman history. The higher education of the time gave every facility for scholarship, and Livy's writings afford ample evidence that he was thoroughly conversant with Greek literature. Whilst probably still a young man, he migrated to Rome, and here he was a professed teacher of rhetoric. The gradual stiffening of autocracy made eloquence of little value as a political force, but as a dilettante accomplishment its study was growing even more fashionable than formerly. Opportunities for study were ample. Livy would find two splendid public libraries, one built and opened by the brilliant and spirited writer Asinius Pollio, which consisted of two wings, one set apart for Greek, the other for Latin literature. The second was a state public library, which was founded and richly endowed by Augustus. It was probably during the earlier part of his Roman life that he wrote the dialogues on the philosophy of history to which Seneca alludes. 
What led him especially to the study of history and gave him the first suggestion of his monumental work may to some extent be gathered from the pathetic personal touch in his preface. He tells us that he sought consolation and distraction from the troubles of the present in the contemplation of earlier and purer times. He wished to set for his contemporaries, quote, in the clear light of historical truth, examples of every possible type, and to bring back, if it were possible, something of the simplicity and virile self-control which marked the days when Rome first put forth her strength. He strove to awaken the admiration of his countrymen for the men who had made Rome what it was, and to emphasize what he regarded as the essentials of her life. There were many who, like him, were looking back with regret to a past from which their own days seemed to be sharply divided. To some extent, Augustus himself shared this feeling. He recognized the wisdom of keeping up the ancient traditions and the republican forms under which autocracy might to some extent at least be veiled, and in his restoration of the temples his revival of the ludi secularis, and his unavailing efforts to check the wanton luxuriousness of the richer classes, he was in thorough accord with the spirit of the Aeneid and the Roman history of Livy. Livy was above all things a Roman. His affection for the city is the undertone throughout. To a modern reader, this will at times seem a blemish. It leads Livy to excuse much that is unjust, it makes him silent where, as for instance in the case of the repudiation of the terms agreed upon after the disaster at the Caudine Forks, we should look for strong reprobation. He often credits the Roman armies with successes where subsequent events make it certain they were defeated. Acts, whether morally right or wrong, are justified if only they are done in the interests of Rome. He would probably have regarded the judicial temper which duly apportions praise or blame as alien from his purpose. But when the question is not between Rome and her external enemies, but between Romans and Romans, he holds the balance more evenly. His aristocratic sympathies do not blind him to the criminal character of many of the proceedings of the patricians, as in the case of the murder of Janutius, Book 2, Chapter 54. He recognizes the honesty and sincerity of men with whose views he is utterly out of sympathy. The view which Livy took of the functions of a historian was utterly unlike our modern standard. He was not, it is true, devoid of the critical spirit. He frequently discusses the comparative value of different authorities, but of the scientific methods of historical research we find no trace. Nor, indeed, could we reasonably expect it. It was not till the Scienza Nuova of Vico, which may be almost regarded as the novum organum of historical science, appeared that a critical estimate of the records of the past was seriously looked upon as an essential part of the historian's work. It is perhaps, however, going too far to say with Professor McHale in his Latin literature that, quote, when his authorities do not disagree, he accepts what they say without much question. When they do disagree, he has several courses open to him and takes one or another according to his fancy at the moment. That the, quote, subjective element entered largely into Livy's selection of his materials, in other words, that he was influenced by his prepossessions and temperament, is true, but it is true of every writer of history. It determines the personal equation in all so-called higher criticism. We have not the materials before us which Livy had. We cannot determine their relative values. The mass of such materials must have been very great, for in addition to the large public libraries already mentioned, there were many private libraries, 
such as those of Titus Paponius Atticus, Cicero's friend, to which we may be pretty sure Livy had access. In view of the greatness, we might almost say the sacredness, of the task which Livy had set before himself, we should hardly expect that he would fail to equip himself with the best outfit available. It may be desirable at this point to form some idea, though necessarily a very inadequate one, of the authorities on which Livy relied for the material of his narrative. The earliest of these, Quintus Fabius Pictor, wrote a history of the events from the legendary landing of Aeneas in Italy to the close of the Second Punic War. He wrote in Greek, but a Latin version is alluded to by Cicero. His work appeared somewhere about 220 B.C. It appears to have supplied most of the subsequent analysts with their materials. Of these, Livy, in various parts of his work, quotes the name of twelve, but he treats them as of unequal authority. But Fabius compiled his annals some 530 years after the foundation of Rome. What sources were open to him for the earlier history? At what date the various state registers began to be kept, we have no information, though it is probable that they commenced early. We find that they formed various groups. The registers of the priestly colleges, the Annales Maximi, were in the custody of the Pontifex Maximus. He recorded the events of each year on a white board, and these lists were afterward copied out and digested into a chronicle, which apparently ran from the foundation of the city to 130 B.C. They contained the names of the consuls and other magistrates, and all the important events of the year. The memoirs of the censors, which were religiously preserved in the censorian families. Similar official records preserved by the praetors, the augurs, and other priestly colleges. Laws and treaties engraved on brass or stone. The treaty with the Latins and the laws of the Twelve Tables were so preserved. The linen rolls preserved in the temple of Juno Moneta. Livy quotes these twice, but at second hand. But how far these primary sources were open to Livy is doubtful. In the beginning of his sixth book, he speaks of the difficulty of obtaining trustworthy evidence for the earlier times and says that, quote, even what did exist in the pontifical commentaries and in the public and private archives nearly all perished in the conflagration of the city. But that some survived which he was able to make use of is almost certain, and it is at least probable that the most important records were stored in the capital which remained intact. The question of the credibility of Livy's record of the earlier centuries lies outside the limits of this introduction. It is a question upon which apparently scholars are becoming more and more divided. The extreme skepticism of Sir G. C. Lewis and Dr. Schwegler produced the usual reaction, and the battle now has passed to the students of documents and the students of monuments. It will, as Mr. Heitland says, be time to throw overboard the great main facts of early Roman story when they are finally proved to be figments, and this stage will hardly be reached until a rival view of the early history, thoroughly consistent with the later, has satisfactorily proved its own superiority. One thing is quite certain. The whole subject must receive the most careful reconsideration in view of the fresh light that is being shed upon it by comparative ethnology and comparative religion, and to a still fuller extent by the vigorous work and startling results of archaeology. As Livy was unable to write history as a trained critic of the materials before him, so he was lacking in another quality which we are taught to expect in the writers of history. He was deficient in what is called the historical imagination. 
Not only did he make mistakes in matters bearing on the development of the Constitution, for he had not enjoyed the advantage which many of his predecessors had had of filling official appointments and so becoming acquainted with the practical details of administration, but his lack of interest in archaeological research made him fall into many blunders from which such a work as that of Varus, which he apparently did not consult, would have saved him. He frequently transferred the ideas of his own time into the earlier ages. For instance, he regarded the patricians of the early republic as identical with the nobility of his own day, though it contained only a small proportion of the original gentis, whilst the plebs of those days was practically for him the same mixed populace that was known by that designation in his time. Apart from his aristocratic sympathies, his unsympathetic attitude towards the leaders in the long struggle for popular rights and legal and political equality between the two orders in the state was largely due to his seeing in the old tribunes of the plebs the reckless demigods of later times. But however much we miss in Livy the careful estimate of the value of authorities and the patient investigation into the more obscure factors in the development of the Constitution, we feel pretty sure that we have in the main, in its broader features, a fairly adequate account of the process through which the Rome of Romulus became the Rome of Augustus. No historical work breathes more the spirit of the consummate artist. He and his great contemporary, Virgil, were engaged on the same task. The Aeneid invested the beginnings of Rome with a divine light and brought home to the men of the empire the preciousness of the legacy on which they had entered. For Livy, too, Rome is the city beloved of the gods. Her sleepless fortuna is ever watching over her interests and in her darkest hour is preparing for her fresh triumphs. Livy's work may in a very real sense be described as a prose epic. In dealing with the earlier times, where he could treat the subject with greater freedom, his characters are men of the heroic mold. Junius Brutus, Coriolanus, the Fabi, and especially his favorite hero, Camillus, embody for him all that is typical of the Roman character at its best. He frankly admits that he will not vouch for the historical truth of the traditions of the primitive times which have come down to him, but he used them, much as Tennyson used the Arthurian legend, to be worked up into a picture, the moral grandeur of which could make its appeal to the more serious among his contemporaries. He did not seek for the historic causes through which his beloved Rome grew to greatness in the working of economic or physical laws, but in the moral qualities of the people themselves as exhibited in their leaders. And it is because he possessed the poet's insight into character and the poet's power of portraying it that his history possesses a truth and a reality which the most laborious investigation of authorities could hardly have exhibited. Whilst there is a fundamental unity binding the whole together, inasmuch as the Roma Quadrata is still the same Rome, grander and loftier, who gave laws to the civilized world, the actual presentment which Livy makes is not so much of one connected, whole as a series of pictures, each fairly complete in itself, but connected together by a more or less cogent bond. Thus the history of the kings forms a whole in itself and is comprised in his first book. Then the growth of the infant republic, down to the destruction wrought by the Gauls, is sketched in the next four books. He regards the Gaulish invasion as the close of a period. The next period, comprising the next ten books, begins with the refounding of the city and the republic and ends with the conquest of Italy. 
The next 15 books, forming a larger whole, comprise the critical struggle between Rome and Carthage, whilst the following 15 books describe the rise of Rome's dominion in the East. But it is perhaps the dramatic element which constitutes the greatest charm in Livy's work. In the speeches which break and at the same time explain the narrative, he was following the example of earlier historians, but he made a much freer use of them than any of his predecessors had done. In the early books, they are indisputably his own composition, as much as those in Julius Caesar or Coriolanus are Shakespeare's own composition. It is in the critical turning points of the history that he makes the most effective use of this literary form to disclose the hidden motives of the actors, the reasons which guided the Senate to their decisions, the aims and temper of the different political parties. One of the best instances of this, so far as the earlier books are concerned, is found in the speech of Camillus, with which this first volume closes. They deserve careful study, not only as masterpieces of glowing polished rhetoric, but also as affording an insight into the movements and tendencies of the time, which a mere analysis of causes and characters would have failed to convey with equal clearness and vividness, or even with equal truthfulness. And they possess dramatic propriety. The noisy demagogue in the forum clamoring for reforms, the patrician clinging to custom and privilege, the commander encouraging his men before battle, have each their distinctive character. Livy's true dramatic feeling comes out in the impartiality with which he presents the arguments and convictions of those with whom he is obviously out of sympathy quite as strongly as those of the men whom he most admires. He was thus able to make them also the vehicle of his own feelings, finding utterance through the mouth of others for opinions to which in his day it would have been dangerous to give direct expression. Augustus was anxious to preserve the forms of the Republic, but the spirit which had created and vivified them had fled, and the forms themselves were gradually swept out of the path of encroaching absolutism. For Livy, the Republic was the ideal. In it, all the virtues and excellences of the Roman had been developed. The men who had been the support and administrators of the Republic had been blessed by the gods, and under their guidance had raised the state to unprecedented height of glory. He had the true Roman horror of monarchy. Submission to it was unworthy of free men. But liberty was not compatible with the rule of the mob. That was capricious and uncertain, and involved the ruin of the state. Liberty was the absolute supremacy of law over every citizen. The annual change in the supreme magistracies was its safest guarantee. Its surest support was the sense of justice and reverence for law amongst the body of the people, and an aristocracy temperate, wise, and strong, such as the Senate was in the early days of the Republic. The high moral tone of Livy's work is closely associated with his strong religious sense. No nation in the old world, outside the frontiers of Palestine, was so interpenetrated with the consciousness of unseen powers as the Romans. To be on good terms with these powers, to secure the, quote, peace of the gods, was the essential prerequisite of every undertaking, whether in the life of the individual citizen or of the community as a whole. Throughout, Livy is animated by the conviction that the religious side of the Roman character is the main factor in the growth and permanence of the Roman dominion. The first step which Romulus took towards ordering his community was the establishment of forms of worship. Numa developed the existing cult and gave another direction to the whole life of the people. 
Religious motives are exhibited as the predominant ones in almost all the speeches delivered in the more important crises of the history. It is the religious sentiment of his heroes upon which Livy dwells with most enthusiasm. Examples of irreligion call forth his loathing and horror. He has been charged with superstitious credulity because he adopts the traditions and portents and supernatural phenomena. But he tells us why he does so. Quote, As I narrate the events of ancient times, I find myself possessed by the ancient spirit, and a religious feeling constrains me to regard the matters which those wise and thoughtful men consider deserving of their attention as worthy of a place in my pages. Book 41, Chapter 13 His reverence for antiquity did not prevent him from forming his own opinion on these things, but it did keep him from ridiculing, as some of his contemporaries were doing, the pious beliefs of the men to whom Rome owed her greatness. As a writer, Livy enjoyed the very highest reputation amongst his countrymen. One of the greatest literary critics, Quinctilian, ascribes to him, quote, a marvelous charm and a most brilliant coloring in his narrative and an unsurpassable eloquence in his speeches, whilst Tacitus considers him to be the most eloquent writer of the old school. His language corresponded to his subject matter, flowing smoothly and evenly in the less important parts of the narrative, clear and vivid in the descriptive parts, solemn and elevated in dealing with the great and epoch-making events, tender and pathetic in portraying suffering and death. A striking example of this latter feature is the description of Rome just before its capture by the Gauls. Book 5, chapters 39 to 41. His history became the favorite textbook in the Roman schools, and no work has come down to us more fitted to help Roman boys to become worthy citizens. But the splendid past, which was held before them for imitation, was gone forever. The home and the temple, the twin fountains by which the life and vigor of the Roman character were sustained, were passing more and more out of the national life. Livy believed that the very existence of Rome was bound up with these, and history has proved him right. What was true for Rome will be true for every nation under heaven, as long as human nature remains what it is. The references to the classical dictionary and to Momsen's History of Rome are to the volumes in this library. W. M. Roberts, July 1912 End of Section Zero